Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, this morning we're going to return to and continue our study in the book of 1 Corinthians. This morning we're going to be looking at chapter 2, and so I encourage you to turn there as we'll look at this passage in a few minutes. You know, we've been in the 1 Corinthians for the past six weeks or so, covering chapter 1. And now we're going to enter into uh, chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 5. Some of you may be wondering why, why I'm up here and Tony is actually in the audience. In fact, before the service, I heard a little you know, questioning about that. And, and there was some suggestion that maybe the children's ministry workers called a timeout on Tony because he spent 60 minutes in the sermon last week. And so I can assure you that we will be done in less, something less than 60 minutes uh, this morning. Uh, you know, actually, the, my preaching this morning is something that we planned for several weeks. And so I've had the opportunity to meditate on this passage, to kind of chew on it. And before we even get to the passage, I just want to tell you what a blessing it's been to just study, meditate, think upon, and chew on a passage of Scripture. I mean, so often we open the Bible and we kind of chew off a, or tear off a piece and swallow it whole. It's almost like a daily vitamin, right? It's good for you, but there's also a real benefit in just taking a passage and really chewing on it, savoring it, and enjoying the nutrition and nourishment of a particular passage. And so I encourage you, as you're reading, take your daily vitamin, that's good for you, but chew on the Word of God. Now let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians. And if we look at uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 1, you see that the first word is and. Now that's unusual that the first word in the chapter is and. Now I'm a little older than most of you, but when I was a kid... Uh, we had these little educational cartoons called uh, Schoolhouse Rocks. Remember those, right? Okay, so it's still around. All right. So Schoolhouse Rocks. There was this Schoolhouse Rocks little tune called Conjunction Junction, right? You know it, right? Conjunction Junction, what's your function? Hooking up words and phrases and clauses. So we start here with the word and. It's a conjunction. What's it doing there? It's connecting words, phrases, and clauses. Because of that, it makes sense then for us not to start with the word and in chapter 2, but to look at the greater context. So this morning we're going to read beginning in chapter 1, verse 26. We're going to look at the paragraph. And to put this passage in context, we'll start with uh, 126. And if you'll stand with me as we read the word of God. 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 26, reading through two, chapter 2, verse 5. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for those words, for your testimony. We're so thankful that it is truth, and not only truth, but, Father, your power is in your testimony, the power to save, the power to change lives. And so this morning, we just pray that our hearts and our eyes would be opened to your testimony, to your power in our lives, and that we might become your children as a result. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You be seated. So as we look here at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1, the wording here in the first verse is a little tricky. But what Paul is trying to say is that I didn't come as some great philosopher or with some lofty speech or some great orator. I came what? Proclaiming the testimony of God. The testimony of God. Let's start there. I think if Paul is proclaiming the testimony of God, it's important that we understand what is the testimony of God. So we can look up the word testimony in the dictionary, and we'd see in Webster's Dictionary, the testimony is the first-hand authentication of a fact. First-hand authentication of a fact. So here we have the testimony of God. God providing his first-hand authentication of a fact. When you go to court and you testify, you put your hand on the Bible and you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. And you take that oath with the hope that you're going to provide truth. Here we have God the Father, the almighty, supreme, just judge, doing what? Testifying giving testimony. Think about the difference in that, the power of that testimony, that God is the one testifying. This is the testimony of God that Paul is proclaiming. It's not hearsay. It's not circumstantial evidence. It's not his own wisdom or his own words, his own thoughts. Paul is proclaiming what? The testimony of God. You see, throughout this passage, we'll see that the revelation of God is what matters. And that human wisdom means absolutely nothing. Given the emphasis and the importance of the testimony of God, it's important that we understand exactly what is it. The passage says Paul's proclaiming the testimony of God, but what is that testimony of God? 
And what better way to understand Scripture than how? Through other Scripture. So I'm going to encourage you then to turn to 1 John chapter 5. In 1 John 5, verses 6 through 12, John describes the testimony of God in some detail. And we're not going to read the whole passage, but let's just look at verses 9 through 12. 1 John 5, verses 9 through 12. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him, God, a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. You see, Jesus Christ is the central focal point of all redemptive history. It's what it's about. The redemptive history, our Christian faith, is based on Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the emphasis that Paul places in verse 2, which we'll get to in a minute. You see, the Father repeatedly testifies that Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Redeemer. Jesus is Lord. In fact, throughout Scripture we see that. Jesus, in the book of John, when he's rebuking the Jewish leaders because they failed to believe, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these, the Old Testament scriptures, that testify about me. You see, it wasn't that the Old Testament, that the Old Testament is not clear about who Jesus is. It's that the Jewish leaders failed to believe that Jesus was the one that the Old Testament spoke about. In fact, the book of John speaks over and over about the deity, the lordship, and the savior that Christ is. The scriptures in John talk about Jesus as Lord and Savior. The disciples talk about Jesus as Lord and Savior. Jesus' works testify to him as Lord and Savior. His words testify to him as Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit testifies to him as Lord and Savior. And the Father himself testifies to Jesus as Lord and Savior. The New Testament really is supremely the testimony of God about Jesus. Verses 11 and 12 in 1 John say to us that the testimony of God is about Jesus. His glorious truth of redemptive history here in 1 John 5. You see, it's a story about Jesus' life, about his death, about his resurrection, his ascension, and his second coming. That's the testimony of God, and that's why in verse 2, Paul emphasizes this when he says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, when Paul was preaching to the Corinthians, he came to them saying, I want to preach what? I want to proclaim what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. I want you to know that. 
I want you to know the central truth of the gospel, that Jesus came for you to die for your sins, that eternal life depends on it. 1 John 5 tells us that it's a choice, right? There's, there's no middle ground. You either believe and are saved, or you don't and you're not. And that's why, for Paul, he preached nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, I have to be careful there, because it's, as we see, Paul was in Corinth for a year and a half. And we read in Acts that he taught the full counsel of God. So it's not that that's the only thing that Paul ever did was preach evangelistic messages. He preached the whole counsel of God. However, the emphasis of his message, he was proclaiming the testimony of God, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And and how did he go about that? Let's look at verse 3. He went about it in weakness, in fear, and in trembling. Now, I can relate to that a little bit. This is not my usual spot. So I come here with a little weakness, a little fear, and a little trembling. But it's unusual for Paul. We, we don't typically think of Paul as being weak or timid. In fact, we see throughout the book of Acts that we find Paul speaking boldly. But when it comes to weakness, the weakness that Paul is talking about here is the weakness of the gospel which really is the power of God. You see, our weakness is not a barrier for God. It's in our weakness that what? He is made strong. When we relinquish our own efforts and rely, depend on God, He does the work, and He gets the glory, the glory that He deserves, because it's God that saves. It's not our lofty words or speech, as Paul says in verse one and two. It's in that weakness. As Tony talked a couple of weeks ago ago about the foolishness of the cross, how it is foolishness to those who are what? Unbelieving. But there is power in the message because of God. Through the weakness of the cross, God brought salvation to man. Through the foolishness of the message of the cross, men are saved. The weak and foolish men God has chosen to proclaim his gospel. Through weak and unimpressive methods, the gospel is proclaimed, trusting in the power of God to convince and convert. See, it's God that convinces and converts. And so through our weakness, he works. You know, the sad truth is that in a lot of churches, uh, they employ marketing efforts to try to encourage people to come. They use marketing efforts and flashy programs to try to convince people who God is. It's almost like watching a, a commercial for you know, cereal or soap, right? Uh, they display all the benefits in some flashy ad pro- program. Some churches try to train up their leaders using secular means when Scripture talks about leaders as servants. And some churches use a lot of human psychology and psychiatry to try to get people to feel good about who they are or about themselves when what God really wants is for us to obey his word. And so we see here that in weakness, he's made strong. But 
But what about this fear and trembling part? As I mentioned, you know, when we think about Paul, we, we typically don't think of him as weak and trembling. We think of him bold. In fact, let's look in, uh, in Acts. If you turn to Acts, chapter 13 of Acts begins to describe the first missionary journey for Paul. So Paul's a recent convert. He's starting on his missionary journey. And you'd think if there's any time for Paul to be a little uh, timid, a little fearful, a little trembling, it would be just getting started, right? So we read about his first missionary journey in chapter uh, 13. Look at verse 46. It says, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. So from the very beginning, Paul is speaking boldly. If we go down to chapter 14, starting in verse 1, we see that in Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together, and they spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews and Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up in the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. What happened then? Therefore they, Paul and Barnabas, spent a long time there speaking boldly with what? Reliance on the Lord, who was what? Testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. If we read further, we'd see that uh, Paul traveled from place to place. And later in this chapter, he actually heals a lame man. And the people start calling him Hermes or Mercury, the messenger of the gods. And he has to tell them, no, no, I am not a god. This is the boldness that Paul had, doing miracles, speaking boldly. Then what happens to him? In verse 19, the Jews come from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, what did they do? They stoned him. They stoned him. The disciples are standing around him. They had left. Now, typically when you're throwing stones to stone somebody, you throw a few and you leave when the person is dead. So Paul's laying in a heap with stones all around him, the disciples around him, and what happens? He gets up. What does he do? Run? No. He walks back into the city. The next day he went then to another city. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and made disciples, guess what they did? Returned right back to the two cities of the people that had stoned him. So Paul, Paul was not a guy who was a man of fear and trembling. So then we have to think that when it talks about fear and trembling here, there's a different interpretation. In fact, Paul uses this phrase, fear and trembling, in three other places in his passages, in 2 Corinthians, in Ephesians, and in Philippians. And in each case, it has to do with a reverence, with an awe, with an understanding of who God is. You know, when we stand before God, we will fear him because we will give awe to who he is. We, it's not a fear as in, you know, that terrorizes us, that, you know, uh, 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 petrifies us. Thank you. It's, it's a fear that gives respect and awe to who God is. And that's what Paul is talking about here. You know, when I was a kid, uh, I, I had a set of keys that my parents gave me to play with. And uh, not fully understanding the power of electricity, I thought it would be cool to stick the key in the ignition that was in the wall. 
uh, learned that that's not a very smart thing to do. And so even today, after that big jolt from sticking a key in the socket, this is, you know, that tells you how old I am. It's before we had the covers, right, on the, on the wall sockets. Now, when I do any electrical work at the house, even when I shut the breaker off, when you go to touch that first wire, you're like, there's a little fear and trembling there because you know what? The power that exists in that wire if it was running through it, right? And so Paul, when he comes in weakness and fear and trembling, he realizes that when he's proclaiming the word of God, he's proclaiming the word of God and he approaches it in his own weakness with an understanding and the awe of what God can do through his power. Let's look at that. Let's look at the power of God in verses 4 and 5. Paul says that my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, and that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but what? In the power of God. Charles Spurgeon said, The power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, men would be converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it would consist of the wisdom of men. We preach, we might preach until our tongues rotted, till we would exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit be with the word of God to give it the power to convert souls. God demonstrates his power and talks about his power throughout scripture. If we go to Genesis and look at the story of Abraham and Sarah, we see that God had promised to produce a nation through Sarah. But they were old, and Sarah was barren. And so Sarah laughs. And God responds to Abraham after Sarah laughs at his promise and says in Genesis, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for me? Is anything too hard for the Lord? We see another example. In Exodus, the people have left Egypt. God has done miraculous things to get them out of Egypt. He's providing to them manna six days a week for them to eat. And guess what? They're not happy. They, you know, manna every day. Ooh. Can I have some, some meat? We want to have some meat. They start grumbling about meat. And so God hears them and promises to provide them meat for a month. Now, we all know the story of the feeding of the 5,000. We say, wow, what a miracle. But if we look at numbers and this story, we see that Moses says, wait a minute, God, the people are 600,000 on foot. Yet you've said, I will give them meat and they will eat for a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and it be enough? Shall all the fish of the sea be gathered for them and it be enough for them? Now, this is Moses. Here's the guy who heard God speaking to him in a burning bush, whose staff turned into a snake, who saw the water turn into blood, who saw the plagues of frogs, flies, boils, uh, hail, locusts, darkness, death. 
who saw the seas part so they could cross and who saw the seas collapse on the Egyptians and drown them, who saw manna provided day after day, who saw God provide them a pillar of fire at night and a cloud in the day, who gave his commandments to Moses. And now he says, God, come on, you're not going to be able to fi- feed five or 600,000 people for a month, are you? Come on, you can't do it. So what does God say to Moses? He said, is the Lord's power limited? You shall see whether my word will come true or not. And of course, guess what happened? Flocks of quail came. The scripture says they were two cubits deep. That's about three feet deep. And in fact, the 600,000 people spent all day, all night, all the next day gathering them up. That's how many and how abundantly God provided. That's the power of God to do exactly what he says. So this is an important question. It's very important that we understand and do not limit the power of God. It's a critical question that you need to answer for yourself in terms of the power of God. Let me give you some scripture. In Psalms, Psalms say, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. In Jeremiah, it says, O Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth, and by thy great power and by thy outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for you. Jesus said, with, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And Isaiah says, the Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. Do you hear that? The Lord says, just as I intended, so it has happened. Just as I have planned, so it will stand. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? For as for his outstretched hand, who can turn it back? Stephen Charnock, let me read you this quote. It's, it's a beautiful quote about the power of God. The power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can pass... I'm sorry. The power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. As holiness is the beauty of God's attributes, so power is that which gives life and action to all the perfections of his divine nature. How vain would it be if power were not in step with execution. Without power, his mercy would be just feeble pity. His promises would be an empty sound. His threatenings a mere scarecrow. God's power, like himself, is infinite, eternal, incomprehensible, and it can neither be checked, restrained, or frustrated. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the power of God. You see, all power, all power belongs to God. He can do all things. There's nothing impossible for him. He has the power to do what he has purposed. He has the power to do what he has promised. 
He has the power to judge. He has the power to save. He has the power to destroy. He has the power to forgive sins, to save, to defend us, to protect us, to make us stand, to come to our aid when we're tempted. He has the power to keep us from failing. He has the power to raise us from the dead. He has the power to provide everything for life and for godliness. And he has the power to empower us to carry out the Great Commission. You see, for him, who's able to do abundantly beyond we can even think or imagine, according to his power that works in us, to him be the glory in Jesus Christ and in the church forever and ever. Amen. What is our response to that? We have the testimony of God. We have the power of God. We have the best news we could possibly have. And so what is our response to that? We're to share. We're to share the gospel. We're to proclaim God's truth in our weakness, in reverence, in awe of the power that he has and that is in us through Christ Jesus. We are to share that with others. We're going to start uh, life groups in uh, a week. And we're going to talk about this very subject. We're going to be looking at this book. We're going to be using this book, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. We're going to encourage you to share the testimony of God in your lives through the power of God. And it's very important that we understand that it is not our job with convincing words or marketing schemes or uh, flashy PowerPoints or five steps to convince other people. Who does that? God does. But our role is to spread the good news that he has changed us and that we're different because of him. And parents, I want to speak specifically to you because so often I can tell you as a parent, I willed my child to be saved. I tried to convince them I tried to use my wisdom, and I can tell you that from firsthand experience that it was weakness. Some of you know the story of my youngest son and how he came to know the Lord. And I can tell you that it, despite all of my failings in trying to save him, in trying to convince him, in trying to use my wisdom to impart God's wisdom, failed until God spoke to him and called him to, from darkness into life. And he has an abundant life today because God changed him, not because what I did as a parent. You have a responsibility as parents to live a life, a testimony to Christ. You have an obligation to proclaim the word of God, but you can't save your children. God can do that. And so I rely on James 5.16 that says, the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Because one of the most important things you can do for your children, for your unsaved relatives, for your friends, is to pray for them. To pray that the power of God would change their lives. You know, this is a great message, this testimony of God. And so this morning, if you're sitting here going, gee, 
I'd like to know more about that. I would encourage you to come and speak to me or talk to Tony after the service. We would love to share with you the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died for your sins, that you should repent and believe. This is not just mental assent, but a life-changing event. You know, as we conclude here this morning, I want to remind you how the testimony of God is demonstrated. The testimony of God is demonstrated in simplicity and in clarity, rather than some kind of human sophistication or persuasion. It is demonstrated in our weakness and in His power. And it's a simple proclamation of the gospel that God saves his people through his power. Let's pray. Father, we just bow in awe of what you've done in the lives of so many people, that you've called us to be your children and that you've prepared a way for us to have eternal life through the crucified Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, I'm so grateful that you've provided your word to give us clarity and that we don't have to depend on our own words or our own wisdom, but we can fully depend on you, on your spirit, and on Christ's death on the cross for our salvation. Lord, I just pray this morning that if there are those here who don't yet know what that means, that you would open their eyes and their hearts. And Lord, for the rest of us, I just pray that we would be bold in proclaiming the testimony of God to those around us. Thank you so much for all you do in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.